Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast with me, your host, James Clark. On this month's podcast, we have a full house of parliamentarians. First, we hear from Sarah Atherton MP, then Mark Menzies MP, and finally, the party chairman, Amanda Milling. Our first guest is Sarah Atherton, the first Conservative MP Wrexham has had since the constituency's creation in 1918. She's the first female to represent Wrexham and the first female Conservative MP elected to Westminster representing a Welsh constituency. As an army veteran, a member of the Defence Select Committee, Sarah has frequently spoken up for the rights of military personnel and has called for the end of vexatious claims against veterans. In addition, Sarah has recently been appointed as Vice Chair to the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Veterans, and she's also been appointed as the Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Wales Office. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you and uh, your um, staff member, Rachel. It's great to meet you too, Rachel. Um, but we'll You're start. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll start with you, Sarah, if that's okay. Um, first of all, huge, huge congratulations on winning Wrexham for the Conservatives at the last general election. Um, this is the first time, I believe, that the seat's been won by Conservatives. Could you talk us through your campaign a little bit, some of the ups and downs, maybe the the kind of the challenges that you faced and how you overcame them? Can you just sort of talk about talk about the campaign, really? All right, James. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. Um, right. Well, wh where do I start? I was a community councillor, um, as a, co a Conservative community councillor, first of all. Uh, I really enjoyed that job. It was all about um, dog poo and bins <laughs> and green blue algae in the lake. <laughs> and it was really good. And it got me out and about. It got me meeting people. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, and I was a member of the Conservative Party. And I was approached to stand in the Allen D side Seneth by-election um, in, gosh, it seems a long time ago now. I think it was around January 2018. And it was a it was a forlorn hope. It was a no hope seat. It was in Allen D side, which is as red as it comes. Um, the incumbent had sadly committed suicide. Oh gosh! His son, twenty three, was was stepping into the breach, and he was always going to get it. Wow, that's was, a that is a tough seat. He was always going to get it, and it was seen as as a, as a hostile endeavour. Mm. And it's one of these where you're new onto the frame and you really have to cut your teeth and you have to show your mettle. So I studied Allen D side. Um, what I didn't know at the time of the by-election is that you have the whole of the world, well, I say the world, you have the whole of the Welsh media um, looking at you. And it was, it was a baptism of fire. Um, you know, it was live BBC Wales recordings, wow. you know, S4C. It doesn't sound much now from where I've come, but at the time, coming from community council, it was all very new. We had the whole of the Welsh Conservative team behind us. We had Theresa May behind us. Wow. We, we had great um, support, and I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. Got nowhere near winning, got, but actually you wouldn't have known it because at the count I took 25% of all the votes, wow. which in a red wall Labour socialist seat was quite phenomenal and we were smiling as a team much more mm. than, than the, the, winner, the yeah, winning team yeah. smiled. So um, it was really good and I think you know I showed what I was worth. I was a social worker actually in on that patch, in that patch uh, when I was selected so I knew the area. Yeah. Uh, I'd also been a nurse in the area as well, district nurse and I lived in the next door county so I had all the sort of the right credentials I thoroughly enjoyed it really did it was the best thing I'd ever done um, uh, and that was that and I ticked along and I'd sort of raised my profile and then came the selection for the um, general election 2019 I hadn't sat my PAB uh, I suggested I sat my PAB and I got support from women to win great women to win Wales as well as women to win at UK London um, went down to Cambridge as we all do. Did I meet Gagan there? I can't remember. Anyway, I met a few people that I now see treading these halls in Westminster on that selection. And um, yes, I, I got got selected. I uh, got an open ticket, and I obviously lived in Wrexham. The Wrexham seat came up, and I fought for it, and I was selected to stand in Wrexham. So off we go with the campaign. So, sorry, do you mind me asking? No. Um, did you have a? How was the internal selection for Wrexham? Did you have to do a hustings in front of the the association? Yeah. Or yeah. Uh, unfortunately, like many candidates, 
you know, sometimes a relationship with the association isn't as positive as one would like. Um, however, I had been in the association for a couple of years, um, stemming back from when I was a community councillor. So I um, had been deputy chair fundraising, which is a great position to be in. You might not feel like it when you end up being selected for that. But of course, you make the teas, you make the Victoria sponges, you're there doing the fundraising, the raffles. Uh, so you know every member of that association yeah. and you know how they like their tea. So of course, you've built that relationship up with them. It may not seem the most glamorous of jobs. In fact, it's probably the hardest job to do within mm. an association. But of course, when you're standing for selection, you've got them on side. So actually, when I stood for selection, um, I, I got through straight away on the, on the first, first ballot. So that was really good. Uh, and it's, it is all about building relationships up with the association. And associations change their manpower as well. So you're constantly having to build those relationships and networks. Um, I, you know, I, and it is a job in hand, mm. and, it, and it's still going, and probably always will be because of the nature of mm. associations. But it's, it's really imperative that you have their support with you um, and your local councillors as well. We haven't got many local councillors in Wrexham. Mm. We've got about six Conservatives. We're an independent Conservative council. Right. Uh, but the Conservative side of that is, is less than the independents. So, um, so I stood for selection, got it selected on the first round, and it, it was really good. But, you know, like many associations, particularly in Wales, you know, they've never had a Conservative MP. People don't put their heads be above the parapet. They're willing to buy a raffle ticket. Yeah. Door knocking is a, is a different matter. And, and it's hostile. Mm. And you get spat at. Mm. And you get pushed on the doorstep. Mm. And you worry about your canvassers, who are probably all over 70. And it's dark, and it's wet, and it's miserable, and it's an uphill struggle. Mm. So to begin with, with the campaign, there was probably myself, my husband, and Lauren, the, the amazing Lauren, who reached out to me from Manchester University. She'd just finished a politics degree, and she said, could she have some volunteering work? So we met her. And you said yes. Yeah, <laughs> on my around my kitchen table yeah. with the association chair at the time, and she has been absolutely brilliant. So basically, the three of us took Wrexham. Um, but as we went along with the campaign and we built up momentum, we had more people coming out. We didn't have many people, mm. I have to say, yep. you know, and this is not typical to Wrexham. It's typical to the whole of Wales yep. and, the, and the political landscape of Wales is shifting. You know, mm. it's always been very red, predominantly red. Mm. And now, of course, we've got seven out of nine uh, MPs in North Wales are conservative. Yeah. So times are changing and it's really exciting. But prior to that, in November, December last year, it was a hard slog. Um, but from the first door I knocked on in Gwersalt, uh, which is an old mining town, Wrexham is an old mining town. It's based on brewing, mining and football. Um, the guy said to me, been a miner all my life, father's been a miner, always been labour, had enough. The devolve administrations, look what we've got, we've got a health service and special measures. You know, we've got schools that the standards are slipping. Mm. You know, we've got, you know, poor this, that and the other. We're not getting value for money from the councils. It's not working for us. It's gone so bad mm. that we're willing to give you a go. And from the first door I knocked, that was the response all the way through. Yeah. So, um, however, that doesn't mean you sit back on your laurels, not somewhere like Wrexham. Um, and we worked really hard, three times a day, the usual, out in the dark. You know, it, it, it was hostile in some places. It still is very hostile in some places. Um, but we, we took it on the day and we, you know, the 2000 majority. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, congratulations again. Sarah, that's um, that's amazing. Uh, truly inspiring to any uh, candidates out there. And it sounds like it was a long, hard slog, but you did a really good job. Um, now, the reason that we've uh, invited you onto the podcast is because you are, uh, you of course, have a military background yourself. Um, would you like to sort of share a few details about that? Talk us through your military career, how you got interested in the military, and 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 actually what you've done since as well. Okay. Well, uh, I have to be honest, James. It wasn't a very long military career. But um, some of my values and the way I look at life was very much moulded on the four, four and a half years I was in the military. So I, I grew up in Chester, uh, which was a garrison town at the time. 
Uh, so very much the military. I have no military connections in the family. Uh, I was a brownie. My brother was a scout. That's probably the most paramilitary <laughs> organizations we'd ever had. Um, but I, I obviously, the military was very f uh, in, the, in the forefront of how I lived. It's a 22nd Cheshire Regiment. Um, and I left school at 16, as you could then. I had a clutch of O-levels. I wanted to see life. Uh, you know, I didn't want to be tied to anything. Uh, you know, off I went and um, went around Europe for a few years, but then realized that I couldn't live off my parents forever. forever. Yeah. So I needed to find my career and I wondered what to do. And I, I really didn't know. Um, so I thought, mm, careers office in Watergate Street in Chester, I'll just pop in and have a look. And I met a really great careers sergeant there, female, and she said, you'd be great in the army. Took the literature home. My mother went apoplectic. <laughs> <laughs> As so many do. <laughs> she, wasn't, she was not having it. However, I waited till I was 18 because she wouldn't sign the forms beforehand. And um, I did my assessment. I wanted to go into the military police. Uh, and then when I sat my, uh, my tests, they sort of said, oh, I don't think so. And I thought, oh, God, right, OK, what, what, what are you going to put me in? They said, you're going to go into intelligence corps. And I went, oh, right, well, fine, it sounds good to me. And they went, yeah, you know, that's good. You, yeah. you will do it. I said, fine, <laughs> we'll do it. So, uh, so off I went. Um, I'd been in the Territorial Army beforehand. I'd been in the Signals. I was right. in an HF troop. Um, I was started off as a data telegrapher, actually, is where they stick all the women at the time. And um, they were trialling women. This is way back now in the 80s. They were trialling women on frontline duties. Right. So they said, OK, um, We'll trial you in an HF troop, but you'll, you'll be the only me female in the troop. And I went, oh, fine. I grew up with boys. I'm fine with that. Put me in there. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So I was a radio operator. And um, so I got that bit of experience. Mm. And it was a bit like, looking back now, it's a bit like Dad's Army. So every time we went away at a weekend, <laughs> there'd be a beer tent. You know, it was... Really? Oh, God. Well, God no, things have no, changed. There yeah. was no way we were going to go away without a beer tent. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Absolutely. Uh, so I thought, okay, you know, the, the regular army will be the next step. So, mm. um, so off I went into the army, thoroughly enjoyed it, worked with a great group of people, uh, women. Uh, we were um, in Guildford at the time, right. Women's Royal Army Corps. Yep. I was badged Intelligence Corps, but my corps was a Women's Royal Army Corps, now disbanded. Uh, things have changed radically since the 80s for women in the military. Um, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Of course, I married a soldier. Uh, he was a Cheshire Regiment. Excellent. Uh, yeah. He ended Great pedigree. Up, yeah. <laughs> he ended up being posted to Fallenbostel. There was none of this family-friendly policy at the time. I was a soldier. He was a soldier. We were a commodity to the military. Uh, there was no consideration that we were going to, you know, be put together. Mm. So after a while being separated, something had to give. Mm. And uh, as happens probably too often, women give. So I ended up moving to Fallenbostel and being an army wife. Right. So you, so, and so you left the, you left I, the army. I left the army and became an to, army wife. To stay wife. married to it. My gosh, that, um, that probably wasn't, uh, <laughs> that, how, how was that? Uh, really difficult. Yeah. However, um, my goodness, I met some amazing women. Mm. And, um, I, you know, I have to say, I was a little bit nervous from being someone with status, mm. with my own friends, my own career, my own money, to being Fletcher's missus, yeah. which is what I was. Yeah. I was an army wife. Yeah. And um, I got pregnant soon after. I had no idea what to do with a baby. I could strip a gun blindfolded. An SA-80 would just come on the scene then. I could do that blindfolded. I couldn't change a nappy. And those women were absolutely superb. They, you know, they are life salt of the earth. Mm. They, they knew what to do in every circumstance. So I've got a really high regard for partners. I shouldn't mm. say women now, partners mm. in the military. And I don't think the covenant, military covenant, supports them enough, which is something that I will be taking forward. But just peddling back from that. Um, yeah, I was an army wife and uh, it, it was fun times. And they helped me bring up a child, so uh, which I wouldn't have had a clue how to do without them. So it sounds like you actually went from one. Uh, I sort of hesitate to say supportive because you know obviously the army has changed drastically from the eighties, certainly to when I was in it, and even to now. But it sounds like you went from one environment where you would expect there to be camaraderie and friendship and um, a close bond, and you and you then went to another one, albeit not necessarily what you'd had in mind for your career. But you, it sounds like you. 
you could share that bond with the, the other women, the other, the other wives on the patch, for example. Yeah, yeah, you're right, um, because camaraderie and teamwork is something that is, is quite instilled in me now. And, and Rachel sat here with me now, and I've worked really hard, and I hope you'd agree, Rachel, that I, I try and have... <laughs> Rachel's <laughs> nodding. No, <laughs> I try and have a really cohesive team spirit that where we all support each other, we all have fun, we all acknowledge each other's strengths and weaknesses, uh, and, and we act as a family. And that's how I very much I see me going forward as a person and how I work now as someone that, that leads a, a parliamentary team. And that came to me very early on from probably the Territorial Army as it was, mm. through uh, to the regular army, being a military wife, my nursing, which I did afterwards because I trained as a nurse with another group of predominantly women. Mm. Um, and then social work as well, which is less women-based, but still you know, very much working as a team. So those, those, that inherent skill and environment I learned very early on, I've carried on. Absolutely, so there's that teamwork element and also it sounds like you are somebody who who actually engenders that in a team? It sounds like you might be more pivotal to building a team than you've kind of than you've actually alluded to in these conversations, because it seems like you're constantly seeking out that and obviously helping the other people in those teams to bond with each other and to bond with you. But that that aside, it sounds like you've you've dedicated yourself to public service. You know, from from what you've discussed, is that? And I'm trying to kind of get to your conservative politics because obviously you, you, there's an element of service and of community, I think, and teamwork in, in the military and you've said into nursing. How does conservative politics fit into that? Yeah, because another um, perspective there is about duty. Yes, yeah. Um, and duty to yourself, your family, uh, the community you live in and to the whole society you live in. So, um, yeah. I think I, I wasn't necessarily a political being. And I'll go back to my early days as a community councillor. I mean, I'd been a social worker, which I have to say, you know, is a very socialist side of, of, of working, mm. work ethic. Um, however, on saying that, not necessarily so, because when you're a social worker, you don't take over from someone. You don't say, this is what you're going to get. You say, what are your skills? What are you good at? What mm. are you positive at? And mm. we'll build on from that so you can have the resilience and then you can be independent. Mm. Yeah. So as a social worker, you're actually inherently conservative. Because you're sort of building up the individual. You're building up mm. that individual to be independent, to go forth and to thrive. Yeah. But actually, social workers, they see themselves as very socialist. Yeah. But actually, they're not. So, so do you think that your kind of conservatism came from the social work? more you know seeing how you could help people and how they could you know and, and sort of I, I hesitate to try and hijack any of your experiences but people that I presume that you helped you know they then were standing on their own two feet and they were then starting businesses or going to work or or having children or or having you know better mental health is that how you've kind of seen kind of your political passion kind of come come out I think it consolidated during social work mm. because you, know, you empower people, you don't disable people, you empower them to go forth. Yeah. Um, and I think it's probably around that time that I started to realize actually, um, you know, wh what does this mean? Is this political? And if it was political, what party do I stand for? Uh, you know, I'm not, I wasn't inherently, my family aren't inherently conservative. Mm. Um, if anything, they're, they're liberal. Mm. They're quite a strong Methodist family. They're right. not necessarily conservative. Good, good work ethic in the family. Yeah. And I, I think it was, it was around that time, and it was someone knocking on my door. It was a conservative councillor going for re-election. And I, 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 I've got this big arch, glass archway, and you know someone knocks on the door in election time, you think, oh, God, you know, <laughs> don't go to the door. <laughs> you know, you, you pretend. Yeah, 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 yes, you check who it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. You're pretending you're on your phone. Yeah, you just yeah, leave yeah, it, push yeah. it through the door. You know, we, we all do that. We all do that. And, of course, uh, I went to the door and I was committed, saw the rosette and thought, oh, right, OK, I'll have to open the door and be pleasant. And actually, it was that chance opening of the door, which mm. if I'd have probably known, I wouldn't have done. Um, that actually made me start to think about where my political alle allegiances lie. And then I reflected back on my 
12 years as a, as a, um, a social worker and realized, yeah, it's about empowering people to take responsibility. Wow, what a, what a great phrase, what a great line. Um, so, so jumping ahead then, um, now you're in Parliament, you're on the Defence Select Committee. Um, how are you going to help to empower people? What, what um, actions, what activities are you involved in? Um, and what are you doing for the defence community at the moment? Oh, right. Well, I mean, this, I is know, this is a massive question. That was a big, that was a big question, big so I don't want to... Well, you know. I've just spent... Um, well, we, because you know, we are a team in this office, we've just spent the last five weeks um, going through the Overseas Operations Bill. Um, that had its third reading yesterday and has gone to the House of Lords, and we'll see what happens there. So that's taken a lot of time up. Yeah, Sarah was on the Bill Committee. That. So we did line by line scrutiny of that. So that's really interesting and that's coming to an end uh, hopefully very soon. Um, I'm only one of two females on the Defence Select Committee and actually being selected for it was a really good story because Rachel, I'd recruited Rachel in on the frame very early on and it was like, well, you know, I fancy being on the, on the Defence Select Committee. They, only, they don't have any Conservative women on there. And actually, it wasn't really much of a sell because all I did was put a, put a picture of me being 21 years old in a military uniform, put it on a flyer, put a picture of me, um, last remembrance, with some Welsh Fusilier veterans. Of course. And sort of said, you know, I am the only female MP in Parliament sitting. And although the library couldn't confirm this, the library seemed to think I'm the only female uh, sitting that has had a regular military background. So uh, we've got Penny Mordant in the reserves. We've had a f few women in the reserves, mm. but there have never been uh, a woman MP that has had a regular background. Well, that sold it. Yeah. That, it was an easy sell, well, and, to be and, honest. And it would be an easy sell for me. I mean, yeah. it's fantastic that you're here. And, we, and you know, we need more, yeah. more women like you. And, and, you know, obviously, Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces will be supporting trailblazers like you as, as long as we can. But, but, but sorry, you, back, back to your... Thank you, know, you Well, I have to get it in there, because that is amazing. <laughs> I mean, that is just a, an amazing thing. And, you know, I feel very fortunate to be able to talk to you about that. That's great. Amazing. Well, so, so that was an easy sell, and that was really exciting and quite new for a, f a fresher mm. to get that position mm. and well, it, it Sarah said to me day one I am um, I'd quite like to be on the defense select committee I was thinking oh my gosh <laughs> okay how are we going to do that okay fine okay let's think about that for a mm. second and then so we put we put something out and um it came back and Sarah Sarah had got her place on the Defence Select Committee, yeah. so we thought, well, there we go. So what have we got ourselves into for now? <laughs> yeah. A lot of hard work and reading. Came, quite often she'll come back in and she'll go, right, um, I've decided we're going to do this. <laughs> and I'll think, oh, heck, this is what we're going to do next. So one of the things they said very early on, and uh, I have to say we've got some great support from the Defence Select Committee admin and the chair, Tobias Elwood, uh, they asked me, you know, what I'd like to do, and I sort of said, well, you know, what would you like me to do, being very new? Which I, well, actually, uh, there's a high proportion of women, there's a high proportion of women uh, that are overrepresented in the complaint system. Right. And we'd like to look at that. I said, great, you know, I will, I will take that on. Yeah. Uh, that was about eight months ago. Mm. Uh, and it was sort of put to bed a bit, and we have a lot of work to do. We have about three or four meetings uh, a week. Um, a lot of them televised, a lot of prep that goes on with that. Um, so that ticks on all the time. But actually, what then happened was they said, well, would you like to hold a subcommittee? And I said, of course I would. <laughs> Absolutely, of course I would. And we decided what we wanted for the terms of reference. And we wanted to look at, and we are looking at, um, the experiences of women in the military. Uh, female service users and female veterans. So we've set up a subcommittee of the Defence Select Committee, which I have to say is, is pretty nerve-wracking because yeah. I'm going to be the one eight months in being a, quite a novice MP going order, order. Uh, but we'll do it. We yeah. will do it. Uh, so it got out that we were going to do this subcommittee and we have been inundated. It's absolutely snowball, it? inundated. We haven't even... Uh, posted the terms of reference yet for this so so officially it hasn't been made public um, but we have received 
that much support and evidence from around the UK from women, not just women, men as well, mm. um, with their concerns about females in the military now, not only now, I mean, this stretches from Aden all the way to Afghan. Um, veterans, some of them talking about terms and conditions and pensions, mental health, but some of the treatment going on um, in the military as we speak, problems with chain, chain of command and investigations. So there's a whole gambit of evidence going on there uh, about concerns about women. And so, Rachel, you're obviously on the receiving end of some of these. Um, do you want to do you want to kind of talk to us a bit about your role? Yeah, well, our office is kind of unintentionally acted um, as a bit of a hub. All of people are emailing, ringing um, and trying to get in contact with us. And I mean, we're still working out the system and how it works and the subcommittee and the processes. Um, and so we've got we've got people coming to us saying, oh, that they'd like to give evidence or they'd like Sarah to hear her their story um, and from all around the country. Um, and we're just trying to navigate that at the minute but we've we've been unintentionally flooded with so many mm. accounts of things that are really quite disturbing and so if uh listeners want to write in is it is there an email address to write into how can we submit evidence is there anything that cf armed forces can do to kind of help yeah well we haven't sort of official this just came about from sarah doing a couple of interviews a bit of bit of media work where she sort of mentioned that she was going to be heading up this subcommittee and since then we've had people coming in contact with us and we got in touch with um a brilliant lady called diane diane allen who um set up this sort of website that's called forewarned and she she um had an experience in the military and she then ended up leaving the military and writing a book about it and and so we've been working with her quite a lot and she's sort of collated hundreds of accounts of um, women's experiences mm. and she's spoken to every single one of them um, and we've been working with her and she's pulled all these things together mm. and so we're not quite sure what the evidence process will be and what what um, gathering witness evidence will be like um, because obviously Sarah would like to hear from everybody and has heard from a lot of people mm. already and spoken to a lot of women already um, but we're just trying to work out exactly what that process is like and, and whether that's anonymised or not. And because obviously we've got serving women who would like to speak to us. We've got veterans that would like to speak to us. So we've got a whole age range um, to speak to us as well. So I think that the the way to... We're just trying to speak to as many people as we can so that Sarah is informed as well and has as much information as she ha ha can before we go into into this subcommittee. Um, so I think there's, we can get in touch with Sarah's office um, and then we can sort of signpost in the best way that we can at the minute. Perfect. I mean, it sounds like an incredibly important and a very admirable um, undertaking. So, uh, you know, we wish you all the best. And again, it, it, please get in touch with us if we can help in any way. Um, Sarah, we've had you on for quite a long time now. And, I, you're, you know, you're a busy MP and we're recording this uh, during the working day. Um, I'm just going to try and squeeze one more question in, if that's OK, um, which is um, how would you normally be spending Remembrance Day? Um, and obviously, because of the coronavirus um, lockdown restrictions, um, which have literally just been voted in. Um, how will you be spending Remembrance Day uh, this year? Okay, well, Remembrance Day um, is a big day in my, pers in my personal calendar. So I remember from my time in the Territorial Army and the Army that, you know, a lot of time would be spent on prepping a uniform. So I certainly will be bulling those boots up for the day, always do. Um, and it was always, to me, quite a sombre occasion. There's always a march, there's always a procession, there's always a church service, there's always uh, laying down of a wreath. Mm. Um, and then there's a celebration. Mm. And you probably know that, James, mm. from your time. And then there's always a curry. And there's always <laughs> games in the mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so the day is, is very much bipolar. It's of two parts. So I always celebrate it. Usually, before I was elected, I would go and lay a wreath um, as a councillor in my local church we have a procession there aren't many processions going around anymore which i think is quite mm. sad but in my village uh, we do have a procession we march through the village and we lay a wreath uh, then i go to the legion where there's always a curry and a good chat and a few pints uh, and, and i remember that way so this year is going to be different i'm really concerned about the the lack of poppies and the visibility of poppies mm. i see on the streets mm. 
I'm doing my best to try and promote that. I'm really concerned that service charities are 40%, around 40% down on their takings already. Mm. We're going to see an impact of that over the next year mm. on the types of services these charities can provide to our veterans. Um, I am really concerned about that. But this year uh, in Wrexham, we are going to have a very small live stream service. There's going to be 30 people. I'll lay a wreath. I usually go to the uh, Welsh Fusilier in Wrexham and have yep. a few pints of the veterans. That's not going to happen this year because Wales it will still be on our lockdown. Yeah. Um, so what I'm going to do is lay a wreath in Wrexham. Then I'm going to go to each of the smaller ward memorials and lay a personal wreath. Uh, and then I will probably go home and have my curry and, <laughs> Good. and a few pints. Good, and, that's right. And say thank you. Thank Absolutely. you to all those serving personnel, Absolutely. past and present. Well, I'm, I, you know, I'm sort of sorry to end it on a, on a sombre note, but, you know, I, I, I also will be, you know, remembering in a, in a different way from most years, but I'll still go and, and lay a wreath in the, uh, the, the local memorial. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for being on our podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. You've been incredibly... Um, you know, you've been very interesting. One of our livelier guests, and I think one of our most <laughs> honest. Is that a good thing, um, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and I was going to say, you know, I we haven't actually reached all of my questions, but perhaps mm. in a few months we could come back and have a chat with you, hear how um, the the, the yeah, subcommittee is going, yeah. and perhaps answer some of the the, the other questions that I that I was going to pose for you. Yeah, that's sure. That'd be really interesting because I think gonna, there's going to be some interesting aspects come out of this subcommittee, which I think will be of interest to uh, a lot of listeners. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our second guest today is Mark Menzies, who was first elected in 2010 as the Conservative MP for Flyde, winning the seat for the fourth time in the general election of 2019. His main political priorities are UK energy security, changing the planning system to empower local communities, and ensuring a vibrant future for the defence industry within the UK. He's undertaken the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme and is a vocal advocate for the defence sector within the party and the wider political sphere. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, first question, you, you don't have a military background yourself, um, but you're highly knowledgeable about the defence sector and very well connected to the defence industry. Um, how, how has that come about? How have you kind of developed those relationships and how have you kind of built your foundation of knowledge? Yeah, um, morning, James. I mean, a number of ways, really. I think uh, one of the the main areas is having BE systems, military, air, defence, in my constituency. You really have to get your knowledge uh, up to speed and up to speed quickly because you never know when you're going to be dealing with people that that is their life's work. And so that uh, is one of the main ways uh, that, you know, I gained that knowledge because often you'd find yourself having to stand up and speak about issues in Parliament, but more often than not engage with ministers, engage with officials behind the scenes about things that are highly technical, uh, but, but still incredibly important. But uh, another way in which I was able to get my knowledge up was through the Armed Forces uh, Parliamentary Scheme, where you, you know, I've spent time with the Navy, with the RAF, with the, with the Army, and, and there, you know, you never come away as an expert but you come away uh, much, much better informed because you have the opportunity to speak to the men and women of the armed forces of all ranks uh, and really uh, hear from them firsthand their experiences. So, you know, it's, it's, it's part of that mixture that, that helps to give you the knowledge that I think you need as a member of parliament. And, and Mark, it's great that you've you've raised that kind of your sort of role as a member of parliament. Um, obviously, you've, you've got the BAE systems um, in your constituency as like a, a, a big presence. How does that affect your day to day kind of running of your office? You know, how is that different from an MP who perhaps doesn't have, a, a, you know, that kind of military footprint um, in their constituency? You know, do you do you spend more time with defence industry bodies? You know, do you? You know, do you talk to you? Do you have more plug into military charities? Um, you know, how does how does that affect your um, your your uh, MPs post box? You know, how, how do you have a lot of constituency issues because of because of that presence? Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, BE Systems in my constituency, Walton, employs six thousand two hundred people. 
up the road, uh, BA Systems at Sam's Bay, that's about another 4,500. So for your listeners, the, the, the Wharton will do a final assembly on Typhoon, on Hawk, but it'll also lead, lead all the export campaigns. And up at Sam's Bay, they'll do the manufacturing of the, the rear fuselage section of the F-35. So it's not just the job numbers, it's then uh, the impact that has on the wider economy, the number of BA systems pensioners, and so on and so forth. So you're talking about a huge number of people uh, whose uh, incomes or their uh, livelihoods are dependent one way or other um, on the defence sector. And so when you have things, something like a strategic defence review, I mean, I had the one after the 2010 election, where there's some pretty tough decisions made, and, and that had an impact on jobs at Wharton. So the Nimrod uh, Mark IV, for example, that, that was cancelled. You know, that is something where you're engaging um, with the people whose you know, jobs are affected, lives are affected, uh, and, but also, you know, from a standing start, you're getting involved with ministers to try and find out, you know, what else is going on and what else can be done in order to plug the gap. But on a, on a day-to-day basis, uh, you know, there is always events taking place in Parliament, either around uh, defence manufacturing sector uh, and even interests, you know, for example, the submarines at Barrow. You know, that is not something that is directly affecting my constituency as such. But I will often find that I've got project engineers that have been working on, uh, you know, Typhoon, but because of uh, opportunities at Barrow, you know, that they're then suddenly, you know, working on uh, the Dreadnought-class submarines, for example. And so you, the, the amount of, of opportunity to take part in defence-related activity in Parliament is considerable. And, you know, it's, you, you could be doing it every day if you, if you, you know, so chose. Yeah, Mike, so it sounds like, obviously, having such a huge defence presence in your constituency means that there is a, a large impact on your day-to-day work as an MP. Now, some of your colleagues are a bit antagonistic towards the defence sector, um, and, and it must be difficult for you yourself sometimes to, to be both, on the one hand, kind of representing your constituents and trying to, um, you know, sort, sort out their problems and their issues, but also trying to maintain a positive relationship with, in this case, BAE Systems. Can you talk about how, you know, why some of your colleagues are kind of perhaps a bit sceptical of the defence sector and why you you seem, you know, from our previous conversations to be much more kind of collegiate and cooperative? I mean, often it comes from a lack of knowledge, uh, you know, if I was being quite frank. I mean, there are people who will often make statements on the defence sector, they will, you know, so I've seen people contribute debates, and it is based on a handout from third-party organisations. Uh, you know, there are people who are very knowledgeable, and 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 their hostility towards uh, the defence sector, you know, comes from knowledge and, and research. But I'm afraid there are also people, you know, as I said at the outset, that fall into that that bit in the middle. And I would encourage, you know, all people, regardless of what your views on the defence sector is. Uh, you know, spend some time with these people, understand, uh, you know, what they're about, be it people who are serving the armed forces or people uh, who are in the defence manufacturing side of things. And and I think, you know, for example, the trade unions actually can add a lot of value here because, you know, trade unions such as Unite um, up at Wharton, uh, you know, that, you know, they will often also hold um, events and activities and sometimes be able to reach into uh, you know, areas of, of people that, you know, I, I simply couldn't. Um, and they are reminding people that we're talking about, you know, apprentices, we're talking about people that are involved in high-skill advanced manufacturing, uh, you know, mm-hmm. tens of thousands of jobs, but things that also give the UK sovereign capability. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if we are not manufacturing defence equipment or exporting defence equipment, uh, we'll suddenly discover that the French, the Americans, uh, you know, or even in some cases the Russians or the Chinese uh, will be doing that for us. And so I think we have to recognise we are world class at uh, defence manufacturing and have been for a very long time. And so, you know, let's not, lo- not, let's not lose that um, sovereign capability. 
Oh, Mark, you know, the, the members of CF Armed Forces and myself agree with you, you know, 100%. And actually, that brings us nicely on to a question that, that I wanted to ask you, which was about Team Tempest. Um, the last time I heard you speak um, kind of in a more public forum was was in a meeting between industry leaders and MPs about um, Team Tempest. Could you talk us through the, the project um, and sort of comment on how it reflects this kind of growing consensus that the defence industry and you know the British government need to collaborate in order for us to to maintain our our status and also obviously to to maintain that sovereign capability that you you talked about. Sure, I mean I mean quite simply, I mean for those of you know listeners who aren't fully up to speed with Team Tempest, Team Tempest is uh, you know sixth generation uh, fighter program uh, where essentially we're pulling together lots of the technologies that the UK has been working on for many years. Uh, you know, some of it is around the unmanned aerial um, combat capability, you know, use of uh, Mark, you, you know, Mark, you're still there? Yes, I am, yeah. Oh, sorry. Can you, um, can you repeat that? You cut out on the audio recording. Okay. Um, Okay, so uh, maybe from the beginning, yeah, yeah. So I mean, for for those people that aren't aware, Team Tempest is the you know sixth generation fighter program. It is in some respects a successor uh, to Typhoon, but it will be able to do lots more um, than just Typhoon. It's pulling together you know you know more than a decade's worth of work that's already taken place on projects such as Tyrannus and a lot of the the unmanned aerial combat vehicle work. And this will be an incredibly um, successful platform. It'll be like nothing we've ever seen before. And, and it's, Tempest is not just an aircraft. Tempest has got the capability to operate, uh, you know, to use the, if you want to talk, discover them as, as drones or, or, or other platforms, but the ability to you know, eventually you know, act as a sort of mothership um, for a whole load of other uh, you know, uh, defensive or, or offensive um, platforms, uh, mm. you know, or in, in a combat situation. And so this is something that, you know, th some of the, this technology, in fact, all of this technology is incredibly cutting edge. And the UK is very much at the forefront of it. And so Team Tempest, for me, represents, you know, uh, the next stage in not only our uh, defence journey, but, but more importantly, this is about UK sovereign capability in defence research and defence manufacturing and it's incredibly important that we get behind it. And so does that does that kind of play into this idea of global Britain that I know that you know Boris Johnson and the current cabinet are really you know trying to push obviously you know coronavirus aside you know that that kind of um, that idea of Britain as a kind of um, a sort of export hub um, and a, a kind of an exporter of not just uh, manufacturing and goods, but also perhaps of intellectual property and this kind, like that whole kind of collaborative piece. Do you, do you think that kind of plays into it? Yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, what Tempest should demonstrate for us is the UK's ability to go out into the world and forge new strategic partnerships with countries, you know, sort of part of Team Tempest, we have Saab from Sweden, for example. So it's that ability to go out there um, and you know, forge strategic relationships and partnerships that allows United Kingdom uh, to retain sovereign capability over the future, uh, you know, real high-end uh, defence equipment. And not only manufacture for ourselves, uh, but to give us export opportunities for Tempest and other related technologies. You know, one of the reasons why the UK has got such a large work share in F-35 it's not because we're buying huge numbers of aircraft, because in reality we're not. It is because after you know, many, many years of involvement in programmes going as far back as the Harrier, the UK has got a lot of intellectual property that we can roll in uh, to you know, programmes uh, such as F-35. And mm. essentially we, we can buy ourselves a seat at the table, which mm. is in effect punch above our weight. And if global Britain's about something, it's about the UK's ability to, to go out there, be focused on things that we're really good at, punch above our weight and earn and trade our way in the world. And I think, you know, Tempest is, is just one of many examples where 
we can do that within the defence sector. It, it all sounds very exciting and it all sounds like it's going in the right direction. Um, so I'm going to switch fire with the questions a little bit um, and, and I'll maybe put you on the spot, Mark. I hope you don't mind. Um, if you were the current defence minister, if, if you know um, things were different and, and, and Ben Wallace was no longer in position and, and you were there, what would you be looking to get out of the Strategic Defence Review, which I believe has now been pushed into the long grass? I mean, it, it, to, to sort of broaden the question, you know, what, what would you expect to see over the next few months? And, and would you anticipate either in, in the next Strategic Defence Review or in the Integrated Review, some of the kind of swinging cuts that we've seen trailed in the newspapers. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I mean, Ben Wallace is my next door neighbour, so I'm, I'm, uh, I hope Ben stays in place for, for many years to come. Otherwise, I could, I could have my own uh, sort of land invasion to, to deal with. But I, 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 I really think that we need to realise that we have to be prepared to invest properly in our defence infrastructure. And that's not just equipment, it also includes the men and women of our armed forces. Mm. And I think the case has been made uh, for the need for uh, more surface ships that we simply cannot uh, continue to ask the Royal Navy uh, to do all of the operational tasks and, and also then be able to react to emerging situations. And, and we've had you know, a fair share of those over the last 10 years mm. um, with uh, the number of surface ships that they currently have. And, you know, if that if, if that case, you know, has now been made for Royal Navy, we also need to start making that case uh, for the army because, um, you know, I, one of the things that I've been very lucky um, to be able to do is by spending time, you know, with the, the, the army and, and also getting briefings um, as we do, um, you know, very frequently from senior members of the armed forces. It's crystal clear that you know you need uh, you know a sufficient number of uh, you know men and women on the ground, and I'm not sure the numbers that are, are currently being bandied about in the press. You know, I mean, down to you know eighty thousand, for example. Mm. I don't think that um, you know cuts the mustard, frankly. Um, mm. And also suggestions that we you know, can have a modern army without tanks um, might be very interesting if you're sitting in a think tank. But not very interesting if you're actually involved in, in battle and actually need proper tanks. So I, I think you know we we need to sort of flush some of these things out for what they are, which hopefully mm. are you know people flying kites and actually just really focus now on um, you know spending. I mean I think we need to be spending more than two percent because you know let's face it the the threats that the UK now faces um, are now higher um, mm. than. Uh, they were when spending 2% was seen to be a sensible thing. So in an unpredictable world, spending a little bit more money now might save an awful lot more money in the future. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, so, Mark, that, we're, we're kind of getting towards the end of the, the, the this podcast element. So thank you so much for joining us. I've got one last question for you. Um, Throughout your time in Parliament, obviously, you've voted on numerous um, defence matters, some some uh, seemingly trivial um, or, or perhaps less exciting um, and some, you know, perhaps with a bit more gravity and, 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 a, and a bit more difficult. And, and as a former serviceman myself, I'm interested to know if any of those moments stand out in your memory and whether you feel more pressure or the weight of your decision when matters of war and peace are debated in the house rather than say rather than other other matters you know is there this this almost historic um feeling that you get or is it is it a kind of clock in clock out you're an mp you've got to go through you know the, the eyes or the nays and, and you sort of you know you follow the whips yeah no when it comes to the, the kind of matters you're referring to it's it's absolutely um, never a clock in, clock out. You, you do think very deeply um, about what you're doing. And I think that that is incredibly important. And I mean, there are many uh, times when you're you know, dealing with defence issues in Parliament and voting on them and that they stick in your mind. In fact, arguably, they all stick in my mind. But I think there's, there's probably one in particular, uh, and I think that goes back to uh, the action that we took uh, on... Uh, Syria and Iraq, and the, and the airstrikes for Syria and Iraq, mm. and you know that the, you know these were all these were debates that were all incredibly heated and and you know 
you know, very impassioned cases being put on both sides. And, you know, we took the decision. I mean, Parliament voted very narrowly not um, to, to take, um, you know, airstrikes against, um, you know, Iraq and Syria. And in 2016, I went to uh, northern Iraq uh, as a guest of Aid of the Church in Need. And we drove across the end of a plane and we went to villages, Christian villages that had been, uh, many of them had been wiped out by ISIS. And we came across this one church and it had been, it was an ancient church, been there for centuries. And, uh, the, the, and, the, and the people of the village, and they were all incredibly humble, simple, uh, you know, people living in a village sort of thing. And, and they were full of thanks for the action that we had taken. And the truth of the matter was, at that moment in time, um, you know, the, the action that they were actually referring to wasn't actually taken by us. It was taken by the United States. Mm. And they were very thankful because had the United States not taken that action, those villages would not be there. Those people would have been killed. Those mm. churches would have been destroyed. And you sometimes get caught up in very emotive language about, you know, not bombing to save lives, actually doing nothing can often lead to many, many more lives being lost, often under the most horrendous circumstances. And interestingly, I, I, I went on to meet um, some of the, the members of the American Air Force um, at uh, Lakenheath, uh, again, through the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme. And I was telling them this story. And that was, that was very powerful for them because um, as you know, professional you know, uh, pilots of, you know, of F-15s, uh, taking part in in that kind of action, they get debriefed on the, you know whether they've they've hit their targets or not, and whether the mission has been accomplished. Um, mm. What they what they don't necessarily get to see is the the very ordinary people whose lives have been saved by by their actions. Um, and and I think that is something that you know members of the armed forces who do put themselves in harm's way um, as a result of it will save countless lives. Uh, and that is something that is not always recognised. Mark, what a powerful uh, story, um, uh, anecdote, um, experience to end on. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, it sounds like you know, you, you, you know, as as expected, you know, you do, you do indeed um, take a, a great deal of care in those kind of votes, and have also seen firsthand what action or inaction can lead to. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you so much for um, sharing time on this Friday morning uh, with us. We really, really appreciate having you on and we wish you all the best in the future, Mark. James, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and, and very good luck with all what you're doing. Thank you so much. third guest today is the party chairman, Amanda Milling, who has a background in market research for the financial services sector. She was elected to Parliament in 2015 and represents the constituency of Cannock Chase. She's served on numerous committees and subcommittees, been PPS to the FCO and was the Deputy Chief Whip. She became the party chairman in 2020. Amanda has taken part in the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme and cites the Armed Forces along with business and enterprise and education in young people as her main areas of interest. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us um, on the uh, CF Armed Forces podcast. Um, it's been a, a, a manic week. Um, can you talk us through it from your perspective, particularly with regards to the latest lockdown, um, you know, the vote that happened in the House on Wednesday and what it means for you and for your schedule? So... It's great to be joining you, James, and um, your, your listeners too. And you, I, as you mentioned, we had the vote on Wednesday, which introduced new national restrictions. And, you know, it's for, and that's for England. But I think it's fair to say we didn't want to be in, in this place. But, you know, we have got to get on top of this virus. And, you know, we've got to go back to that spirit that we showed back in March when, you know, we all pulled together as a, a country, our communities pulled together so that we were stopping the spread of the virus, doing everything we can to protect the NHS, but most importantly, 
um, save, save lives. And so it, you know, we, we've had the, the regional system, but we've, we've had to move on to national um, lockdown until the 2nd of December. And uh, we just need to all pull together I mean, I think that that kind of that spirit of togetherness, which you've referenced, is uh, was was so important in March and was almost kind of spontaneous. Um, but it's something that you know, as kind of you know, conservative activists, you know, and members of the community, people really need to get out again now in uh, in November and and try and reignite that that spirit of togetherness and try and get everyone moving in the same direction. Otherwise, we could be in for sort of a, a you know a, a much more serious situation um the the lockdown is obviously going to have an impact on remembrance services which is is deeply saddening you know for, for veterans like myself and i know for lots of people um, around the country and um, what did you have planned um and and what do you recommend instead i mean for example will you be attending virtual services or or attending in person and socially distancing yeah so it's, it's really um sad that we can't necessarily kind of mark remembrance sunday as we, we would do normally but um personally um, my plans keep changing <laughs> so normally there's about um, eight services that happen across my constituency so i and i can't be in eight places at the same time so i normally rotate where where i am now this year i was supposed to be in Rugeley, which is uh, actually where where i live and they've, they, there was going to be a church service, but that church service is now going to be virtual. So I will be doing um, the prayers virtually for, for that service. You know, they, we local authorities are, are organising remembrance services. And, but the key thing is that they should be outside uh, with social distancing being practised as well. But I also know that in my constituency that I remember, James, remember during lockdown, we had the clap for carers. Of course, We're yeah. doing something which is similar, which is you actually come out onto your doorstep for a, a minute silence um, to mark Remembrance Sunday. So we, as with everything this year, we're having to adapt and do things differently because, it, you know, we've importantly, we've got to stick to the rules. Um, mm. But also at the same time, managing to mark those kind of key events in, in the calendar. Mm. I mean, it's really important to kind of keep those traditions alive and obviously sort of stick to them for a, from a kind of sort of social fabric uh, aspect. But as, as you said, you know, it, it, we, we've got to kind of sort of to a certain extent move with the times, but also respond to the situation we find ourselves in. And, and so things like doing these kind of virtual services, um, I, I'm going to go to one myself at um, two o'clock after um, I've, I've laid a wreath socially distanced uh, at, at 11. Um, you know, actually, that that's quite a good way maybe helps people connect you know more with um with some of these services um so going on then um can you talk to us about any military experience you've got do you, do you know anyone who's been in the armed forces are you connected kind of politically or personally um so I, i've got friends who are in the armed forces or were in the armed forces too um staffordshire has got a very kind of rich history in terms of the armed forces as well because we had the mm. staffordshire regiment and we still have the Staffordshire uh, regimental mascot, Watchman Five. We have Watchman Five and Watchman Six. James, I'm not sure if you're familiar with our mascot, but this is a Staffordshire Bull Terrier. Fantastic. And um, they are always out on parade. In fact, I'm going to do a plug here to go to their Facebook page. They will keep you entertained during lockdown. They keep a diary of lockdown. They have full uniforms, and it's it's always fun to see what they're doing. But they are they are amazing, and um, but also I, I did take part in the armed forces par uh, parliamentary scheme, so in the army scheme, and that saw me visit uh, various barracks around the country, as well as going to Kenya. Um, we went to Gibraltar, and. Wow. Um, Estonia as well to visit kind of our forces, our wonderful armed forces, um, you know, both here in the UK, but those posted abroad. But it was a, it was an incredible experience to actually kind of meet our troops on the ground and see what they, you know, the training that they have, you know, the, the experiences they have actually um, in their various posts. That's that's amazing. And the I mean, we, we've had um, a few of the guests on our podcast have talked about the armed forces parliamentary scheme. How, 
do you know is that i mean how many people is that open to and what, what's the kind of criteria for joining uh, for as, as mps so i'm not sure the exact numbers now but it, normally it's around roughly um Ooh, about 30 or so colleagues It's probably normally about 10 to a dozen on each yeah. of these the, the three schemes and um there are no criteria you just need to apply and it it is a fantastic insight into our armed forces and i, I know that it, all colleagues who've taken part in it they really kind of value that mm. experience yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody talks really glowingly about it. So I'm, you know, I'm pleased that you've 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 sort of had the benefit of it, and I'm I'm glad that, that they do too. Um, so uh, so sort of moving on now, and and kind of this is our, our sort of favourite uh, question that we that we ask um, members of parliament for help with. We, we've got many of our listeners, many of our members are politically active, either at a, a local level or at a national level. Um, and we try to provide some information and, and support for candidates. Um, I wondered if you, you know, that there's, there's um, certainly at the parliamentary level, there's a bit of a reshuffle um, with the system going on. I wondered if you would feel comfortable or if you're in, in a position to be able to talk to us to some of the, the changes and maybe offer some advice to any aspiring candidates. Absolutely. So um, I think I should say, first of all, um, in, in contrast to my kind of pre recent predecessors, in James Cleverley, Brandon, and before that, Patrick. I'm not five weeks away from the next general election. So, <laughs> well, we hope, but no. <laughs> so, I, when I was appointed back in February, I was in a fortunate position coming into the organization where we could really kind of look at and review a lot of um, aspects of, of the party. And one of the things which we've undertaken is a review of the candidates' process. And that's a review end to end in terms of identifying talent and the, the future parliamentarians, police and crime commissioners and, and mayoral candidates through to how we assess talent and then also how we support and nurture candidates as well ahead of um, selections and then going on to elections too. So that process completed, we made an announcement uh, last week about this and that there will be changes to the way we assess um, our candidates. So we'll have new assessment centres those listeners you have who are already on the list have had the opportunity to apply to be relisted and we'll be starting that process um, in the next couple of months. And then we'll be opening up again to kind of more broadly to seek out new candidates to be assessed and, and to be on the list ahead of future elections. So it's a really exciting time. It's been a really great opportunity to really look at the way that we um, as I say, attract talent, but also then assess and support talent going forwards. And then I'd do you have any, oh, sorry, sorry, Amanda, sorry. And do, do you have any advice for, for kind of aspiring candidates as to kind of what, what they can do to kind of put themselves in the, in, in the best kind of possible position? So my main advice is kind of really kind of go, I will go for it. You know, if you want to be a, a candidate, you know, get involved with the party when we start to open up the list, kind of apply. But it's, it's about kind of, there's so many different aspects of being a candidate, you know, it's in, and we are seeking, we're looking for people from a whole range of different kind of backgrounds in terms of their life experiences. And we have some fantastic MPs, as you know, James, who were, who served in the forces. So most certainly put yourselves forward and get involved in the party. And we have plenty of opportunities to be getting involved with, a bumper crop of elections next May. Well, that's 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 led us perfectly onto my my next question. I, and I was going to say, you know, when um, members approach me and, and sort of ask me for advice, um, as well as obviously sending them off to people with with um, you know far far more experience than I have, um, I always say that one of the most important things is getting involved in your local association and actually getting out on doorsteps, talking to people about politics and learning about how local politics works so that you can feed that in at a national level. And, you know, we have got local elections slated for May. So, you know, is it, what, what, what are we going to do? What's the what's the plan? Um, I mean, I was out delivering leaflets uh, yesterday in Hartford. Um, but but what, what can we do? What advice is there for, for local activists? Yeah, so, so we keep having to kind of change our guidance, clearly, in, in, um, in light of the restrictions and, and government advice. 
Um, so, but, you know, over the summer, we were able to get out and deliver leaflets again. Sadly, we've not been in a position to be knocking on doors. But we'll continue to review that guidance. Currently, the, the guidance is that we can't deliver leaflets, but there's so many other things we can still do using social media. We can do connect calling and telephone canvassing. But as we go into next year, we will continue to review that guidance in terms of getting back to campaigning as we know it. I know I've been amazed how enthusiastic everyone is and how they've been itching to get out on the campaign trail and particularly knock on some doors. I think after last year, we, uh, we had so many different elections. I think that we probably used lockdown to rest our weary legs, but I hope everyone's mm. got their delivery bags and their boots to the ready, because certainly going into next year, we've got a huge number of elections. If you think that we've got the mayoral elections, police and crime commissioner, county councils, some districts, Scotland and Wales, so there's plenty of campaigning for everyone. Well, that, that's that's good to hear, and I and I think um I think you're right from the from the the people that I've spoken to. Actually, you know, a, a little break was was probably um, welcome, but now people are itching to to get back and you know to keep maintain momentum and keep keep the the tempo up. Um, finally, Amanda, I, you know, obviously you're very busy, and I really really appreciate you um taking the time to speak to our members, and um, we're we're really grateful. Thank you. Um, but just kind of finally, I guess the question is. What can membership groups like ours do to help you and CCHQ and, of course, all of the local associations um, over over the coming months and perhaps years? You know, is there anything that you would kind of encourage us to do, um, you know, both our members or our, our kind of leadership team? You know, what 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 can we do to to help the help the cause? I, the, the key thing is, is help us get the message out about um, the Conservative Party finding those new members who in turn will be new um, activists and also potential, uh, potential councillors and parliamentarians. For me, it's really important that we reach out. We have a very broad and diverse party and have representatives at all levels of government. We talk a lot about members of parliament, but I want to see more people serving at local council level as well, also um, as mayors, police and crime commissioners. So. We need to get out, get the message out, get more members and get more people involved. Fantastic. Something we can all get behind. Um, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, and you know, I, I would say enjoy the lockdown, but but I suppose if you can get some rest over the lockdown and, um, and keep up the fantastic work on behalf of the party. Thanks, James. I think it's fair to say everyone would be keeping me pretty busy during lockdown. <laughs> we're back well, to the Zooming. So I was doing a it. bit we're of zooming. zooming. Yeah, I was kind of spent the summer Zooming around the country. I'm back to Zooming in front of my uh, computer screen. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Amanda. And uh, hopefully we'll speak to you in a few months. Thank you, James. Thanks. You've been listening to the CF Armed Forces podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and join us for the next month. Goodbye.